Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah of the Cognitive Canine. And today is our second episode about Prime. So if you haven't listened to the first episode about the Border Collie named Prime, go ahead and check that out first. Um, typically, I've been doing three episodes for each case, and I've decided to do four <laughs> for Prime. So today's going to be two of four. Um, before I get started, I had a couple of email questions about the decompression walks that I recommend that I wanted to address here um, because they're common questions. So if you've been listening, you know that I recommend something that I call a decompression walk, which is basically it's an off-leash walk or it's a walk that is on a long line in a harness. Um, but generally speaking, it just it needs to be in open space and the dog needs to be allowed free movement. And that's kind of the cornerstone of it. Um, one of the questions that I get a lot is about safety. Um, so I had a question about somebody who's got a small dog and is worried about predators, um, coyotes and rattlesnakes in particular. And the thing that I need everybody to understand is that we always want to weigh cost and benefit, right? So we always want to assess risk and then decide to proceed or not. And that is true for anything that we might do with our dogs. Dog agility, for instance, is not without inherent risk. Um, I know some dogs who have had very serious life-altering injuries from doing agility through no fault of anybody's other than just the nature of the beast. Um, and that's something that I have to think about every time I step to the line. That's something that I have to know is a risk. I choose to continue to do dog agility because for me, the benefits for the dogs and myself um, outweigh the risks to either of us. This is true anytime you get in the car, right? <laughs> I mean, we all know that there's inherent risk with driving. And so for me, doing a decompression walk is always about... Um, certainly measuring that safety and, and deciding that it's worthwhile. If I were in an open space area that I knew was laden with rattlesnakes, there's no way <laughs> that I would let my dog run around in it. And I'm from Colorado. And so that was a reality where I lived in a lot of different areas. And so no, my dogs were not running around off leash in those spaces where I knew that was a big risk. Um, I, would, I tended to just go high enough in elevation that it wasn't a risk. But um, one of her specific questions was that, was that her dog is little. And so coyotes and things like that are actually a bigger risk and a bigger deal. And that's something that you need to take into consideration too. And so what I would say is long line and harness when you can, off leash when you can, but definitely don't put anybody at unnecessary risk for the decompression walk. You can certainly decompress in a park, you know, that that's manicured and probably doesn't have coyotes and rattlesnakes as long as the dog is allowed free movement. Um, so long line harness zigzagging on a soccer field is something that I've had a lot of my clients do if they were worried about the risk of open space. Um, so that's something that you definitely want to think about. You also might consider if you've got a friend who's got a big backyard that your dog's never been to, 
by bringing a bottle of wine over and let your dog explore their backyard and just have um, an opportunity there for your dog to do some exploring and be a dog. So that's important. I definitely don't mean to imply that anybody should just, you know, throw caution to the wind with that. And then somebody else's question about decompression walks had to do with their dog actually becoming extremely aroused by this kind of exercise that I'm suggesting. And if the dog is on a long line in a harness, they're basically plowing into the harness um, on a tight long line the entire time and zigzagging back and forth and um, getting really worked up. And, you know, her point was, you know, you mentioned not to do the kind of exercise that puts the dog in an unhealthy state of arousal. Uh, like ball fetch for Jade in one of the earlier episodes. And she's concerned that this kind of exercise actually does do that to her dog. And my answer is always, you know your dog. So if you feel as though the dog's in an unhealthy arousal state and the dog is worked up after the exercise, you've got a problem. If the dog is actually relaxed after the exercise, um, then the exercise is probably doing them good. Um, and again, keep in mind tiring versus taxing. So if the dog is just kind of passed out dead, um, can barely move, then you may consider, you know, is the dog really the good kind of tired? Or for me, when I see my dogs be a good kind of tired, um, they're having REM sleep on the floor, um, they're, but they're not, you know, their startle response isn't increased in any way. They're happy to wake up for food or wake up to go outside if I ask them to. Um, and they, and in a few hours of rest, they're back to normal. So, um, and I see less, less anxiety related behaviors. And that's usually how I assess it. If anxiety based behaviors increase, I didn't do the right kind of exercise. If they decrease, I did the right kind. So that's what I would look at with your dog that has too much arousal. And if, uh, the long line harness or the off leash running is actually working your dog up to an unhealthy state. Um, I would actually go to a more secure type of open space, like a smaller yard, and I would scatter food or I would scatter something else of interest um, around the yard so that the dog is actually engaging in um, a searching type pattern. So the dog that she mentioned is a sporting breed and he may well be kind of in a searching pattern when he's getting himself worked up but scattering hot dogs usually kind of engages a different part of the brain <laughs> than uh, searching for birds and so that might be something that you try um for that dog but again just always look at the results that's the only way that you're ever going to know do anxiety-related behaviors decrease or do they increase? And is the dog's rest quality or is it not quality? And that's what you want to look at. So moving right along, um, we're now going to talk about Prime. We're going to talk about a few of his issues today, but not all of them. So again, tune in. We're going to do an episode three where I'm going to finish up talking about what we did to help him. Um, so we're today we're just covering kind of half of them. We're going to start out with his issue with the seesaw. So I had mentioned last time that he would attack and bite at the teeter in agility very violently and that he would actually become aggressive to anybody that tried to make him stop. 
Um, I, when I witnessed this behavior, I very much saw something that was, that seemed compulsive to me. So it seemed like he didn't have much control over it. He was just doing it and he physically could not make himself stop doing it once he was engaged in it, which is why if you tried to stop him physically, he would become violent towards you. Um, and I mean, you could have his favorite toy and try to get him to stop and it just didn't matter. And I think, again, that's because he didn't have control over it. So with the teeter, we needed to back way up. We needed to, first of all, not have him on or anywhere near a teeter for a long time. So he was only entered in jumpers type classes. I didn't even want him entered in gamblers or anything like that where there was a teeter in the ring. And we we're getting pretty close to the time that we stopped having Prime do any competitions anyway, but... At first we said, okay, let's just, let's get rid of it. Let's not have it around when he's doing agility. And then we went through some really long um, protocols for him to just help him feel better about the teeter. Notice that I said feel better, not act better. So that was probably the first major turning point for Heidi in her education here was learning that we needed to address Prime's feelings, not just his actions, and that by addressing his feelings, his actions would be addressed. Um, so something that we talked about a lot was the difference between classical and operant conditioning, and then as well as something called uh, desensitization. So operant conditioning is learning through consequence, right? So dog sits, you give a dog a cookie, positive reinforcement. That's a consequence um, in operant conditioning. There are four quadrants, and to be honest, I'm not going to bore you with them right now. Just understand if you don't know the four quadrants of operant conditioning, you can Google it and you can read about it. And it's, for me, understanding all of that jargon is not as important as understanding the actions that I want my clients to take. So while I understand the quadrants, I don't necessarily always need to bore them with the client with the quadrants. So I talked to Heidi about operant conditioning is just learning through consequence. That's what I wanted her to understand. And everything she tried to do with the teeter so far was was trying to teach Prime through consequence. So you do the teeter this way, you get a reinforcement. You do the teeter this way, you get a punishment. Um, that's that's all learning through consequence. And you guys, punishment, not meant to have a negative connotation here. It's just a word. It just means that you did something to suppress behavior and it could be extremely mild. So she was attempting um, to teach him through consequence to not bite the teeter and to perform the teeter the way that she would like, which is to um, do it quickly and to stop in a two-on-two-off at the end. So... Then we talked about classical conditioning. Classical conditioning is learning through association. So operant conditioning is through consequence. Classical conditioning is through association. And classical conditioning is what we're talking about when we talk about emotions and feelings that have been developed about a certain thing. So Prime was immediately um, anxious or triggered anytime the teeter was involved. So the teeter, if the teeter banged um, nearby or other dogs were doing it, um, not necessarily noticeable to to average people, but I could see, you know, a flicker in his eye at least anytime the teeter was happening. And then when he did the teeter himself, it just really stirred 
a lot of emotions in him that incited um, these compulsive types of behaviors. And when we see compulsive behaviors occurring, we can trust that anxiety is fueling those behaviors. So can we ask him, how does the teeter make you feel? We cannot, but we can observe his behavior. And his behavior was such that the teeter obviously was not making him feel good. So we needed to come at it from um, more of a classical conditioning standpoint as well and technically a classical counter conditioning standpoint because he already had yucky feelings about the teeter and we needed to change those feelings. So classical conditioning technically exists when you've got a neutral stimulus, with the t- which the teeter certainly was not. Desensitization is also something that I think is really important. Um, and I think that people don't give enough credit a lot of the time. So desensitization is just a, you know, slow exposure to something. So you start at a level where that something is not triggering and you slowly increase the level of exposure. So, um, I'm afraid of spiders and if there's a spider on my desk, I'm pretty much freaked out. I'm going to scream and jump back (laughs) and I'm not going to be sitting at my desk very long. Um, if there's a spider on the wall, clear across the room, I'm probably going to startle at it, but I'm probably not going to scream or leave the room. Um, I'm probably going to have more of a brain about it. And so if you wanted to desensitize my response to spiders, you could, you know, maybe show me a picture of one across the room. And then you could have a real one across the room. And then you could, you know, maybe have a picture of one closer to me and then the real one closer and and so on and so forth until it could be, you know, sitting on my desk um, and I wasn't afraid of it. Now, mind you, that would take a long time Uh, (laughs) because my feelings about spiders are very yucky and the yuckier the feelings, the harder it is to undo them. Um, And so... For Prime, we did a whole lot of just, he saw the teeter, he was just hanging out near it, he was on a long line in a harness, he was not being restricted, Um, he wasn't being told to do anything, and literally Heidi would just have him observe it. And then we started to put in, um, we started to add some reinforcement for choosing to disengage from the teeter. And a lot of that comes from my education in Grisha Stewart's BAT, a behavior adjustment training work, um, that I wanted to show Prime that he could experience relief from the teeter by choosing not to engage with it. So he would look at the teeter, he would either you know give a calming signal or look back at Heidi, or typically he would just look at it and look away And then I would have Heidi go away from the teeter and then they would play some tug. Tug being a very high value reward for him that does not put him in a bad arousal state. Um, And we built up and we built up and we, you know, we did a whole lot of just teeters are boring is what I called the work. So it wasn't, you know, stand next to it and you get to tug. It was we walk up, we look at it, nothing happens. We walk away, we play a game. I also had him chewing a bone in an X-Pen right next to it. I had him eating meals off of it. So the bowl is just literally propped right 
right on the end of the board. Um, the teeter was always secured by a cinder block so that it could not bang any time that he was um, near or around it during this training because that was his biggest triggering thing that the teeter does. It was the motion and the noise, uh, which is for most dogs. It's one or the other. And we got to the point where he could eat on it. We got to the point where he could walk up to it. Heidi could take it, bang it on the ground. He would do nothing and they would walk away and play. Um, we did a whole lot of really deliberate counter conditioning of the bang itself. So Heidi would just sit on the ground. She'd bang it and she'd throw food, bang it, throw food. And she started out actually banging other things before she was ever to bang the teeter. So I would have her bang, you know, um, a wobble board on the floor or a bowl on the floor. She would just bang stuff, give him food, bang stuff, give him food. Um, and this was, you know, a time when Prime's whole attitude about almost everything that Heidi was doing was kind of adjusting and changing. And so for me, their teeter process was them coming together again as a team and no longer being on opposing sides. So it was Heidi saying, I respect you enough to be patient. I respect you enough to go slow. And I respect you enough to say, if you're not eating, you're not comfortable, as opposed to just accepting that you don't eat. Um, and it's really, it's really big stuff, you guys. Um, Heidi's actually got a video that's up on my website of her, of a lot of this work um, that I can link to uh, when I post this podcast. And it's really amazing to watch them go from walking up to the teeter and walking away to him actually performing the teeter. So after a very, I'm going to say the better part of a year, she worked really hard on this. And finally, we started having him do a teeter again. And he started with a low teeter. And what I did was I said, let's do something that I call station to station exercise. So a lot of the times when the dog is maybe uncomfortable with something or maybe triggered, I want to have um, I want to have the dog starting with a station and ending with a station. And stationing is just training the dog to get on a thing or a, or assume a position. So for Prime, he was using um, a cot, these kind of little folding dog beds. And he would do the teeter, get released to the station, reward. Um... And they built up, they went from a low teeter all the way up to full height, did it actually pretty quickly. He, I think he amazed us both. He kind of said, yeah, yeah, we worked on this. I feel pretty good about this thing now. Um, would he never, ever, ever attack a teeter again if he were triggered? I'm not going to say that. But I will say that the teeter is no longer a big, a big point of concern for him. So... And I think, again, more importantly, Heidi learning how to take the time that needs to be taken and how to recognize that what we're trying to change is emotions and not behavior. And then we're going to allow those changed emotions to change behavior. Um, 
just understanding that was a big thing for her. And then I think for Prime, understanding that he is not going to be, that he wasn't going to be pushed and that he was always going to be respected was a turning point for him as well. And then similarly to the way that we worked with the teeter, um, is the way that we worked with Prime kind of blasting off of the start line. So I imagine Prime on the start line in agility as like he's in a pressure cooker and somebody just takes the lid off and that's the leash coming off and he just flies out. Um, he, I think, again, just a lot of buildup of pressure to walk in. So what he would do is he'd come in the ring, he'd look around, you know, he, he'd he be glued to the course, kind of unable to look at Heidi. She'd take his leash off. As soon as she didn't have a hold of him anymore, he would just spring out and just outrun the whole course. Sometimes she'd run with him and he would take some of the equipment kind of on the way around and sometimes not. So it became such an issue that she couldn't really, she couldn't really run him. As well as Heidi was a new person when we started to address this. She'd been through this teeter process and she said, I recognize that this start line thing is the same thing and that we need to change emotions and not behavior. And when she had everybody around her saying it's a training problem, it's a, you know, you need to correct him. He's coming off the start line. You need to remove him from the ring, which is something that she's done. She had tried um, and obviously didn't work. And so with everybody around her kind of putting that pressure on and with her kind of saying, no, I think I know that it's his emotions that need to be handled. Um, that's a really great place, I think, for anybody to be able to get to with the dog that they're working with, to be able to ignore, you know, what everybody else thinks and to acknowledge what we know to be true. I think I would encourage everybody to try to get there. And so we embarked on just doing some desensitization of walking into the ring. We worked on specific, we worked on some classical counter conditioning, um, of ring entries at home. And then she would literally, she would do fun runs and fun matches and even enter trials where she literally walked into the ring. Prime is at the end of his leash, staring at the equipment. She waited for him to come back to her. He came back, they left and they ate some food and they did it a lot of times. Um, it was, I'm going to say that this process was the hardest on Heidi because of all of the reasons that it would be difficult to go to a trial and not get to run, to have everybody asking you what the hell you're doing. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a really tough thing and I'm proud of her still for trying. There was a time when she chose, she said, you know, I just think that this isn't fair to him and it's not fair to me and we're not going to keep doing this. And because there really weren't any fun matches or fun runs for her to be doing this at, so she was doing it at trials. And we saw him make huge progress. We didn't see him make the kind of progress that he needed to make to have this be a short process. And like I said, the teeter took the better part of a year. It may have taken more than that. I will get the real answer on that from Heidi when we talk to her. Um, this would have taken the same amount of time, 
if it ever worked. And it's tough. It's tough to kind of commit to doing that. And she's right. I think it it took a toll on Prime to go to trials and walk in the ring. And I agree. I think if she had had a lot of UKI or fun run kind of opportunities, she probably could have made some more progress on that. But as it is, um, she decided to abandon this project. And I really respect her for that. Um, We both kind of agree that agility is not a healthy environment for this dog to be in. And so he can practice at home and he can do occasional, you know, fun matches if she chooses. She just did a fun match where he just ran a tunnelers course, so just tunnels. And he was amazing. He had no stress. He, I mean, he did, he did brilliantly. And if he can just do that occasionally, why not? Why not just do that as opposed to, you know, being this, these, this weekend warrior and going to trials and doing every run and it's just better for him to not be participating that often. Um, and so that's kind of the end of our agility stuff that we worked on. And now we're going to start talking about more of his home life, his behavior, his behavior specific to just kind of living in life. Um, Heidi did involve a veterinary behaviorist at one point, and when she involved the behaviorist was when we were seeing some home life issues kind of getting to a plateau. So we had done a lot of work, he had done a lot better, and this is usually when I have people engage a veterinary behaviorist, is when we're doing a lot of good work and we are, our progress is kind of stuck. There are certain cases where I'll have people consult with a veterinary behaviorist before we ever start working together. Um, Prime's not one of those cases, but he certainly became one. And so because of working with the behaviorist, he is on a drug cocktail that really works for him. One of the drugs that he's on is mitrizapine, which um, acts as, it's an anti-anxiety drug, but also acts as an appetite stimulant, which is one of the reasons that he eats now. He, as I was talking about working through the teeter and everything, was not on metrizapine yet when we started that. And he was eating because we had adjusted a lot of things in his life that had helped him be more ready to eat. But metrizapine has been life-changing for him. Um, he eats readily. He works well for food. It's It's been a really nice thing. So that's why you get a veterinary behaviorist involved is because they know you know, what drugs are going to help what, and, um, definitely invaluable to have that help. So I recommend that, um, there are a lot of them, you guys who will consult with you wherever you are. You don't necessarily need to have one where you live. Heidi certainly did not have one nearby. So she consulted with one, um, on the internet and it's been a huge help. So the, couple of things I want to talk about with his home life that we worked through was I'd mentioned that he was really averse to pointing. So if you pointed at anything, that could be a trigger for him to become aggressive and that Heidi and her husband had stopped pointing at stuff. Um, They generally still try to not point at stuff, but we did work really hard. So we did an exercise that I just called pointing is wonderful. Um, And Heidi would 
at first point at nothing, she'd just point and then give him food and point and give him food. And then I had her put a bunch of nonsense objects out, a box, um, I forget what else she used, you know, household stuff, like a cleaner bottle, you know, nothing, just nothing stuff to a dog. And she would point and feed him and point and feed him. And soon he kind of went, oh, you know, pointing at stuff is just a predictor for me getting a treat. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that I need to understand anything. It just means food is coming. Um, again, a dog that's super not, in, not super into food, is this going to work? You know, the reason it worked is because the reason pointing was so bothersome to him in the first place was that it was confusing to him. And what we did here is we said, you don't need to act or do anything when a person points. You All you got to do is eat. And that really helped him be calmer about pointing. And we eventually would do you know, pointing at, um, at station objects as well. So he understands how to get on a mat or a bed or in a crate and also pointing and cueing him to get on or in something helped him to understand, oh, you know, pointing occurs sometimes with known cues and I can do what you're pointing at. I can go to that thing and I can get reinforced. And that was helpful for him as well. Um, so we did weeks and weeks of pointing is wonderful. So just pointing at random stuff and throwing food at the dog. And I think we involved a toy reinforcer in this as well um, at times because Prime, again, really preferred toys to food. So point, here's a toy, point, here's a toy. And was really helpful and we all we had to do was remain kind of outside his trigger zone so we had to say you know I know right now that if I point at a doorway that's open the dog could become aggressive or if I point at a board and that goes back to his two on two off stuff he could become aggressive so we're not doing any of that pointing at non nonsense stuff and then we're pointing at stuff that's known to him but not so triggering and now still Heidi does avoid pointing around prime she's trained to do that but he has not become aggressive over pointing in a long time um so we made some huge progress with that and the last thing that we're going to talk about today is just something that I think bears mentioning because it's a piece of advice that a lot of people receive when they're working with their dogs. And it's a piece of advice that comes heavily, I think, in the agility training world because the agility training world a long time ago realized that if we were using a bunch of harsh corrections on our dogs, that they weren't going to go very fast. And so just by nature of what we needed the dogs to do in the sport, the training started to veer towards positive reinforcement-based training. Having said that, a lot of people in agility come from old school dog training backgrounds and they knew how to apply consequences that were aversive to dogs to change behavior. And because of that, I see what what has kind of become the the PC or the acceptable corrections in agility. And I'm talking about timeouts 
and I'm talking about collar grabs. So if you guys have heard about, you know, just hold their collar for a second as a collar timeout. Um, that's what I'm talking about. And I just want to mention a little bit why I would caution anybody against the use of those things, especially if you're working with a dog that has any kind of aggression problems. Um, I did mention last time that if somebody advises you to do something and the dog becomes aggressive, you should certainly stop doing it and certainly find another path. Um, specifically with these things that seem very benign, what you might be doing is producing confusion or frustration, especially with a timeout. So anytime you put the dog, maybe you put them in a crate, maybe you walk away, maybe you remove them from the ring, maybe you, you know, put them behind a baby gate or whatever. Um, understand that that classifies as punishment, whether it classifies as positive punishment or negative punishment. Again, those are those quadrants of operant conditioning. Um, I think is debatable, and in a lot of these cases, it's being classified as negative re negative punishment when, which basically just means you take good stuff away. When I think the contrary is completely true, and I think that it is actually classified as positive punishment, which means that you apply an aversive to the situation. Because if you actually physically take the dog and put them in a crate, I would call that an aversive action for most dogs. So. And if they, you know, work to avoid that in the future, it is defined as aversive. So um, what I would just caution you about is I would say, you know, punishment suppresses behavior. Reinforcement builds behavior. So anytime somebody's asking you to apply a punisher, which is what a timeout is, to change behavior... At the very least, make sure that there is a very dense reinforcement history for the correct behavior in that scenario. And truthfully, if there were a long enough history of reinforcement involved, you probably wouldn't be seeing the problem behavior that you are feeling compelled to correct in the first place. So to give you some examples, um, we're going to talk a lot next time about Prime's kind of inability to respond to cues sometimes in, in the house and how triggering cues could be to him. So simple cues like sit, like come, like lie down. Um, or like here, which is a hand target for him. Simple cues could be a problem because sometimes they meant to him that he would lose his freedom. So it was, come over here, you're going in this pen, or, or come over here, you're, you have to come out of hiding, come over here, I'm going to take your sweater off, those kinds of things um, were a problem for him. And so he'd sometimes refuse to do them. And Heidi had been advised to grab his collar if he, like, if she said sit and he didn't. She was told to just hold his collar until he chose to sit. Um... And just besides the fact that that's dangerous advice, I don't even think it's smart advice um, because it doesn't tell the dog what it is that you actually would like. And I know the argument is that you already said what they would like. You already told them to sit. And my counter argument would be, but they didn't, which means that they either didn't understand or 
enough reinforcement was not present, enough reinforcement history was not present to make it worth their while that they did so in that time. And grabbing a collar when a dog does not respond to a cue is no different from popping them on a prong collar or a choke collar. It is the same thing. Um, It is a correction. It is meant to tell them you made the wrong choice. Make another one. Um, With a dog like Prime in particular, you are just not going to get away with any of that garbage. (laughs) The theme of the next podcast. So the theme of Prime Part 3 is actually going to be about being a smarter dog trainer because just because dogs are incredible and they let you get away with all kinds of garbage doesn't mean that you should. And so when it comes to collar grabs and other kinds of uh, timeouts, I just want to caution everybody and have everybody just think about whether or not whether or not you could be more clear and you could actually communicate what you do want from the dog as opposed to always communicating what you don't want. So that wraps it up for Prime Part 2. Like I said, there's going to be four parts. So next time I'll be talking some more. Um, We're going to talk about Prime's hiding problem in the house. We're going to talk about how he struggled with transitions, how he struggled with broken patterns. Um, And we're going to talk about why dog trainers should really look at the training of other animals to kind of get better at what they're doing. Because dogs, again, most dogs, very tolerant of a lot of poor training. And other animals tend not to be so tolerant. And that's why looking at what those people are doing is a good idea. So you can always shoot me an email uh, with questions or comments, cogdogradio at gmail.com. I do request, um, if you have a question about raw diets, that you kind of look into it first. I cannot give anybody a recipe for a raw diet. So if you have questions that are specific, um, I'm still going to tell you there are better experts than me to be asking. I could try to point you in the right direction, but I cannot give anybody any recipes for raw But I do love having your questions and your comments, so shoot them over. And we'll be back in two weeks with more of Prime. Thanks, guys. Bye.